0: listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit brockportfirstbaptist.org. The scripture reading this morning is found in Romans chapter 9 verses 19 through 29. This is from the New Revised Standard Version. You will say to me then, Why then does God still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who indeed are you, a human being, to argue with God? Will what is molded say to the one who molds it, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? to make out of the same lump one object for special use and another for ordinary use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience the objects of wrath that are made for destruction? And what if he has done so in order to make known the riches of his glory for the objects of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, including us whom he called, not from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called children of the living God. And Isaiah, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel were like the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will execute his sentence on the earth quickly and decisively. And, as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left survivors to us, we would have fared like Sodom and been made like Gomorrah.
1: Thank you, Jim. Am I on? Yes. So, I'm not Dan. I'm sure that you guys didn't notice that. However, I just wanted to make sure that you are aware, I am not Dan. However, I am reading all of his words. This is the benefit when you get called at 6.30, you get his sermon. So we get to have his teaching and hopefully I won't mess up the reading. So forgive me now if I do. Um, So just to refresh us all and bring us up to speed where we're at in this series, um, we're working through Romans 9 through 11, where Paul is wrestling with Israel's rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. Paul is Jewish, and so it triggers an existential crisis for him, and I imagine for many of the first Christians to see that the bulk of their people, the bulk of their fellow Jews, have rejected the Messiah. And in this section of his letter to the Romans, Paul's working through all of that and trying to figure out what God could possibly be up to. How is it possible that the majority of God's people, the Jews, have rejected Jesus, but now all of a sudden the gospel is taking root among the Gentiles, non-Jews, their enemy? What is God up to here? It's really important to keep that context in mind as we read this letter because if we don't, we won't understand it properly. See, what Christians typically do when we read the Bible is we ignore all that original context stuff and we look inside for the eternal truth, the nugget, the key, the universal truth that we can just pluck out of the Bible because it is all about us, right? (laughs) It's all about what we can get out or what the Bible has to say to me. That's not the case. This is what devotional books, many devotional books do. This is where I have to say this is definitely Dan's words because I kind of do love a devotional book here and there. Um, But this is why he hates them. Um, They're little bedside books, and they give you one to two verses, um, completely out of context, along with some random dude or dudettes. Thoughts on the passage. I've never thought those things very helpful um, because nine times out of ten they completely ignore original context. They overlook what the author is actually talking about in order to pull some abstract idea that has nothing to do with the text. So let's see if you can guess where that approach to this Bible, to the Bible, leads most Christians when we read the passage that was just read by Jim. Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 20. But who, indeed, are you, a human being, to argue with God? Will what is molded say to the one who molds it, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay To make out of the same lump one object for special use, And another for ordinary use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath And to make known his power, has endured with much patience The objects of wrath that are made for destruction? And what if he has done so, in order to make known the riches of his glory for the objects of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Okay, now I have a question for you, and for you guys up here. If you can hear us and you're watching from home, please shout out your answers. You might have to shout a little louder, Um, but you do have to give me something. Um, So, what if you were to come to this passage... What would you get out of it? What would the message be without any context? God
0: for us to decide purpose why we listen understand what
1: Okay, so it's our place to listen. Any other thoughts? Guys, you were supposed to say something like Dan has the answers that he thought we would hear this morning salvation, predestination, possibly a heaven and a hell type of a situation here. Um, So when we come across this text, when we read it fully out of context, we assume that Paul is making this abstract theological claim about predestination. Christians read this typically as a deterministic statement about divine sovereignty and human free will that is true for all people for all time. God is selected from the foundation of the world, who's gonna follow him and who's not. God has already drafted his team. Some of us are objects of wrath made for destruction, which is a giant bummer, Um, but some of us are objects of mercy, destined for glory, and there's nothing we can do about it because God has already chosen. We all want to be objects of mercy, of course, not objects of wrath, but that's really up to God. And so those of us who are objects of mercy, well, we feel pretty special because God chose us. You even find commentaries on this text about how the objects of wrath, the people God has rejected from the foundations of the world, well, one day they're gonna be tortured and destroyed for the glory of God. I submit to you that that is an immoral view of God. That is a faulty picture That reading of the passage makes God out to be a monster. And if you want to see how problematic it is, let's think about this situation. So let's say you have a kid, and they're really into pottery. And they're taking all their time to make this beautiful, intricate piece of pottery. They're putting careful time in making the outside look beautiful. They've painted it. They've placed it in the kiln. They've hardened it. They've taken it out. And then enjoy smash it. If you have a kid that's doing this, it's one of your kids or your grandkids, you're probably going to question and you're probably going to ask, what's going on here? Sounds like a baby Jeffrey Dahmer on our hands. Right. (laughs) I submit to you that is a messed up view of God and it's additionally problematic because it ignores the entire context of the passage. It ignores everything Paul is working through and wrestling with. All that stuff we talked about last week in the first half of Romans 9, where Paul is lamenting Israel's rejection of the Messiah, ignored. All the stuff about the patriarchs of Israel and how God always chooses the younger son, the lesser, especially when those in power didn't get it, ignored. This reading ignores everything Paul has to say in verse 17 about Pharaoh and the hardening of hearts, and how God shows mercy to whoever God wants. It ignores everything that comes after verse 20 about the Jews and the Gentiles and all those quotes from Israel's prophets. This traditional reading of the passage ignores all of that and makes God out to be a sociopath. I think we can do better. Like, maybe I'm off base here, but I think we might actually have more luck applying this text to our lives if we read it in context. So we're gonna try that. So the first thing to keep in mind when we read this passage, and this is counterintuitive, but the first thing we need to remember is that Paul is not talking to us. He's not writing to Brockport First Baptist Church. He's not writing to those who are hearing this online. Um, We're reading, this is Paul's letter to the Romans. We're essentially reading somebody else's mail. And these early Christians in Rome are not having an abstract theological debate about predestination. They're trying to figure out what it looks like to practice their faith and to follow God in a world where most of God's people have rejected Jesus. Okay, we're going to say that again. The Christians in Rome are trying to figure out what it looks like to practice their faith and follow God in a world where most of God's people have rejected Jesus. Imagine, if you could, a world in which most Christians weren't actually interested in following Jesus. I know it's difficult, but like, try to imagine that with me. Um, A world like that. All the stuff about loving our enemies, embodying grace and mercy, practicing justice, turning away from violence, having no Lord other than Christ. Imagine a world in which most of your fellow Christians were like, nah, I'm not interested in that. A world in which many Christians have conflated love of God with love of country. A world in which being a Christian has more to do with who you hate than who you love. A world in which Christians have become comfortable with violence. More than that, a world where there's a Christian website right now raising money for the legal defense of a man who drove across state lines to shoot protesters. Imagine a world where people of color, communities of color, churches of color were crying out for justice, and the best response your typical white American Christian could muster is, all lives matter. I know I'm probably, Dan is probably, going to (laughs) tick some people off with this. Um, It's not about politics, though. This isn't about left and right, this is about right versus wrong. This isn't about Democrats or Republicans. It's about following Jesus. And we live in a time and a place when most of God's people have zero interest in actually following Jesus. We want a religion that confirms our own biases, a religion centered on law and order, a religion that tells us we're in We're good with God, and everyone else is out. A religion centered on a God who hates all the same people that we do. The bulk of religious insiders in Paul's day had zero interest in a religion centered on some failed Messiah who taught his followers to love their enemies. That has never been a popular message, and it's just as unpopular today as ever. So what did Paul do? What does Paul do in this passage? What help does he offer to these first-century Christians who, like many of us, live in a world where they feel like they no longer fit in their own religion? He reminds them of their history. In Romans 9, Paul recounts the history of God's people. We got into it last week, but Paul starts out by pointing to this theme in the Old Testament where God works through the younger son instead of the older. Everything in verses 7 to 13 of Romans 9 about Jacob and Esau, Abraham, the son of promise, it's this theme in the Bible where God works in unexpected ways. Unpredictable ways, choosing the outcast, the forgotten, the outsider, and working through them, especially when the insiders go astray. From there, Paul talks about the Exodus story, verses 14 through 18 and how God hardened Pharaoh's heart. When we turn our will against God, when we reject God and stand in the way of God's plan for the world, God hardens us in our opposition. In the opening chapter of Romans, Paul uses the language of God giving us up, turning us over. When we set our hearts against God, God lets us go. How much of the violence and destruction we're seeing from police brutality to riots and looting, how much of that is God letting us go? Hardening our hearts, handing our society over to its worst impulses. How many of us have seen friends, neighbors, family members, people of faith, people we care about become stuck in fear. It's like they're getting worse and worse, more and more extreme, retreating into some ideological echo chamber, responding to the chaos and violence on the news by digging in their heels and covering their ears. How many of us have been there ourselves? But notice, this is important. Running through this whole section is the theme Not of divine judgment or destruction, but mercy. Romans 9, 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I have raised you up for the very purpose of showing my power in you, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he chooses, and he hardens the heart on whomever he chooses. For whatever reason, when Paul talks about God hardening our hearts, in the very next breath, he mentions mercy. And that leads us back to the potter and the clay. Verse 21, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one object for special use and another for ordinary use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience the objects of wrath that are made for destruction? And what if he has done so in order to make known the riches of his glory for the objects of mercy? Question, what does God do to the objects of wrath that are made for destruction? We're going to take a closer look at verse 22. God endures them with much patience. Yeah, so those objects of wrath might be made for destruction, but Paul doesn't actually say that God destroys them. He says that God endures them. We might even say that God shows mercy to them. It's not as obvious in the English. You really have to read this in Greek. Thank goodness I did not read this in Greek. Um, But he, Dan, was telling me all about it this week, so it's kind of interesting um, that I get to do this. Uh, So he could pick up with the Greek, you can pick up on the ambiguity here, you could actually read this line to say that the objects of wrath and the objects of mercy are the same objects. At the very least, the line between them is fluid. It's more of a spectrum. I mean, after all, they begin as the same lump. This is not some deterministic line about God choosing who's going to follow him and who's not. This is about what kind of vessel we're going to allow God to shape us into. Will we harden our hearts until God hands us over to our own destruction or will we allow ourselves to be reshaped by God's mercy? And that brings us in Paul's recounting of Israel's history to the idea of a remnant. Throughout the story of the Bible we find instances where God's people fall into sin and set their hearts against God. They deny justice, oppress the poor, fail to show mercy, all of which leads to judgment. But no matter how bad it gets, God always preserves a remnant. There's always a faction, a pocket, sometimes a bunch of little pockets, of people who hold fast to God. It's that silent minority of people who get it. They keep the faith, they practice justice and mercy, they recognize their failures, repent, and return to God. And God promises to rebuild the community from that tiny remnant. So a little history. When the Babylonians swept through Jerusalem and destroy it, it was that tiny remnant of Jews carried off to Babylon who persisted, continuing to keep the faith. In the 1840s, it was the abolitionists, our ancestors in the faith in what was then called the Northern Baptist Convention, who refused to contribute money when the Southern Baptists wanted to send slave owners to serve as missionaries in Africa. Our ancestors in the faith said no, and it wasn't popular. It split the denomination. They were in the minority, but they held fast to God and did what was right. In the civil rights era, it was leaders like Martin Luther King Jr. and another American Baptist, and the minority of Christians who stood with him in the fight for civil rights. They were pro- opposed by a pro-segregation Christian majority, led by charlatans like Jerry Folwell Sr., who opposed civil rights, painting Dr. King as a socialist, un-Christian, un-American, and painting non-violent protesters as terrorists know your history. Why does this discussion about Israel rejecting the Messiah lead Paul into this speech where he retraces the whole history of his people? Because history repeats itself. History was repeating itself for the first Christians in Rome, and history is repeating itself right here, right now, in Rochester. Let's pray. God, you are the pattern, we are the clay. And we submit to you, Lord, that we have set our hearts against you. We have withheld justice. We have become too comfortable with violence. We have failed to check the worst demons in our hearts. And so, God, we turn to you and we repent. We repent, Lord, from the sins of racism and indifference. And we ask that you would reshape us in your mercy. Don't hand us over. Don't hand our society over to its own worst impulses. But Lord, use us as your vessels to promote peace, establish justice, and practice mercy in our land. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
0: Thanks for listening.